Hildy is a body, chain-smoking, 70-something former journalist who lives on the Upper West Side in an apartment that has a portal back to 1973. Time travel has rules, though, and Hildy breaks them by traveling back with slacker healthcare aide Trista. Now, both women will have to come to terms with their pasts before they lose their chance at having a future. From Ahoy Comics comes Elisa Quitney's Guilt, that's G-I-L-T, a comic book that's Sex in the City meets The Golden Girls by way of The Twilight Zone. Grab a copy today from your local comic shop or your local bookshop, or you can get one by visiting alisaquitney.com guilt, that's G-I-L-T, or of course you can get one from the big online retailers, and I've put a link in the show notes to make the whole process easier for you. Welcome back to Elder Sign, a weird fiction podcast by Clay Temple Media. I'm Brandon Buddha. And I'm Glenn McDorman. This episode, we are talking about The Blue Lenses, a novella by Daphne du Maurier from 1959. It is a novella, like I said, so this is going to be the first episode of a two-parter. This will be the recap. Next time will be a discussion. Both of these episodes were commissioned by one of our really, truly generous and super awesome Patreon supporters, along with four others. This is actually the last of them that we are doing. And so we have already recorded and you have already heard Angela Carter's The Lady of the House of Love, Margaret Atwood's Lucis Naturae, Karen Russell's Reeling for the Empire, and James Tiptree Jr.'s Love is the Plan, The Plan is Death. And all of these stories have been really awesome. I mean, I, I hope I'm not spoiling anything about this one by saying ahead of time, it's really awesome. But these have all been really awesome stories that we wouldn't have read otherwise. Uh, many of these were new writers for us, and that's just phenomenal. So we just want to express our, our, our sincere appreciation for this really awesome, really excellent commission. Just thank you so much for that. Yeah, this little mini series uh, that, as you said, was commissioned by one of our supporters has been a real blast. I mean... It's also infused our podcast with a bunch of uh, female writers, and that's been pretty awesome as well uh, to read uh, different points of views and perspectives on the genre. And I've really appreciated that. And I don't know, probably in our year in review, we'll be having to talk about that on some level. Uh, but yeah, this has been an amazing batch of stories. And, you know, this story is not the least for being last. It's also an incredible story. I loved the blue lenses. This is the first uh, Daphne du Maurier story I've read. In our discussion, maybe we'll, we'll be able to talk about our familiarity with her. But my goodness, can she write? And what what a weird story. So we should just get right into it. Meet Marta West, hospital patient. Mrs. West, as we'll call her, currently cannot see. As our story opens, she is convalescing in a hospital following some surgery on her eyes. And we're never going to find out precisely what happened to her. But Mrs. West was brought here with some kind of deteriorating vision. And she was offered, although pressured into, might actually be more accurate, but at any rate, she was offered some emergency surgery on her eyes. And so now she's recovering, she's waiting for the bandages to be removed, but she is also still going to need to have new lenses inserted into her eyes. Uh, but that's going to be a simple thing once she's fully healed and not something to really worry about. Now, this surgery was weeks ago. 
Mrs. West, at this point, as our story opens, is just really weary of waiting. She's weary of sitting in this hospital room, blind, being cared for, being taken care of. On top of that, she's begun to worry that she's never actually going to see again. She's begun to worry that everyone is just lying to her about the success of the surgery. They don't quite know how to break that news to her. And so they're letting her linger uh, in this delusion. But as our story opens, tomorrow is the day. She's going to get her new lenses tomorrow. Now, during her recovery, Mrs. West has had two nurses, a day nurse and a night nurse, The day nurse is Nurse Brand, and she's a cheerful woman who exudes a daytime brightness. Uh, And I'm quoting here. uh, So she's a nurse who exudes a daytime brightness, who was a person of sunlight, of bearing in fresh flowers, of admitting visitors. And by contrast, there is the night nurse, Nurse Ansel. Now, de Moyer sets this up as, in fact, a contrast. And so we expect, right, that the night nurse is going to be the opposite of cheerful and bright, right? That she's going to be uh, dark in in some way. But no, the the contrast is actually that she's sympathetic. She listens. Uh, She doesn't try to cheer Mrs. West up with talk of the outside world. But what she does instead is, is listen. She hears complaints and she worries and understands them. She's uh, a friend. So... Marta, Mrs. West, is introduced to us as a pretty skeptical person. She's skeptical of whether her operation worked, but she's also skeptical of people's kindness, or maybe as she perceives it, their extra kindness, because she thinks that if people are being extra kind to her, that means that she's in like worst-case scenario territory. And Mrs. West can also, you know, for instance, hear anxiety that matches her own and her husband's voice when she talks to him. And all of this combined really makes her super concerned about the outcome of the operation as well. So we meet her as a skeptical person. And so DeMarier is really giving us a deep sense through the writing of the story of how Marta feels about the people around her that is rooted in Marta's need to maintain a sense of like, deep civility, we might think of it as. And, you know, even the nurses are, you know, for instance, as you pointed out, Glenn, perfectly nice in their own way. That makes Marta feel it's easy to be civil to them. You know, Nurse Brand just like talks about the weather and tries to make out and tries to make every terrible meal that the hospital serves seem really appealing because Marta, you know, can't see the food that she's about to eat and Nurse Brand describes it in a way that makes it seem appetizing, even though it's disgusting. But even now, like Marta's civility won't let her complain to Nurse Brand, who's somebody who's trying very hard to make everything seem great. And Nurse Ansel is amazing, too. She's more informal with Marta, and she's willing to hear about Marta's complaints, and she has a really good rapport with Marta, Glenn, as you pointed out. But the way that Dumarie presents all of this to us as readers is with a very close third-person point of view that really slips in and out of dialogue rather than sort of breaking for dialogue. But this really allows us as readers to have a very detailed sense of the world that Marta is experiencing because what's being described to Marta by the nurses is really being colored by Marta's emotions as well. And so this whole story is really Amazing, but the opening is particularly stunning in the way it sets up, you know, 
Marta's anxiety, the way that's echoed back to her by her husband, her emotional state, uh, the way just the narration and the writing technique functions to serve putting the reader in the place of Marta's point of view. But I also have to say, Glenn, that the way you introduce this story here in your recap makes it feel very Twilight Zone. <laughs> and that's totally the right move because. Boy, the opening of this story really reminded me of the Twilight Zone episode, The Eye of the Beholder, you know, where the woman's face is wrapped in gauze and the doctors are trying to make her beautiful because she's hideously deformed. There's some similarity between this story and that episode of The Twilight Zone, but not a lot. Not a lot of overlap, just maybe some superficial touches. That was the image I had in my mind as well. And in fact, I even wondered, although did no looking into this, you know, if there was some, uh, you know, trail from this story to the the Twilight Zone, which is, you know, that episode would have been on the air, I guess, what, two years, three years after this short story collection came out. But I, I do actually think that episode is based on uh, on some other story, but that's a story we could go cover someday. But yeah, the whole feel of this had, you know, definitely the sort of Twilight Zone feel where we want to be introduced to something that is mundane, but a little bit off and that that is all going to be setting up something that is uh, more than a little bit off, actually, about the world, some kind of twist that we're going to get, which is definitely what's happening here. Yeah, I, I did look into it and there's no connection here. DeMarie didn't end up having any of her stories uh, stolen, nor did she write for any episodes of The X-Files. But man, uh, just reading this story and reading a little bit about her and uh Looking at some of the stories in this collection, she she would have fit right in with either the Alfred Hitchcock hour or Twilight Zone really easily. And Hitchcock is, um, I don't know, he bought at least one house <laughs> based yeah. on the success of adapting to more years work, right? Exactly, exactly. And we'll talk about some of that in our in our discussion episode. All right. So Mrs. West is quite taken with Nurse Ansel. This is the the night nurse. She's really become a comfort and a, a companion to Mrs. West. I mean, more even than her husband, Jim, who visits her every night and to whom she has been married for 10 years. And as you said, Brandon, I mean, she senses the kind of anxiety in her husband as well. And she just doesn't get that from Nurse Ansel. And Mrs. West even rings the bell sometimes in the middle of the night with just a, a kind of fabricated need or maybe a, a silly request. And it's really just to have the companionship of Nurse Ansel. And so she finds herself asking Nurse Ansel to come home with her to come serve as her private nurse during her first week at home from the hospital in order to help her settle back into that life. Now, it's not really clear what help she'll need, but of course, that's not really you know, what's going on here. That's not really what this request is about. And Nurse Ansel agrees. Uh, so does Mr. West, though Mrs. West is not sure if her husband really likes the idea. But He's agreed, and so it is agreed. And now it's the day, uh, not the day to go home, right? But, but the, the day to get her new lenses, the blue lenses, in fact, of the story's title. The doctor comes to her room and performs a, a little procedure. He's uh, inserting new lenses into her eyes, and then that's it. All she has to do is wait about 30 minutes. Now, these lenses that have been put in today, they're not the permanent lenses that she'll get before she actually does go home. These are temporary and they're intentionally dark. And so her restored vision at first is going to seem like she's wearing sunglasses and, and nothing is really going to be in, in, in any kind of like sharp color. And after half an hour, as promised, Mrs. West's vision returns. 
She's alone in a room, and yeah, everything is shaded blue, but hey, she can really see again, which is something that she had ceased believing was really possible. As you said, Brandon, she'd become skeptical, maybe even suspicious, in fact. And so now she's overcome with emotion. She cries a little bit. And actually, that's great because it's nice to know that, you know, that function of her eyes is, is, is working as well. But we're actually pretty far into the story now. And so far, nothing weird is going on. And that itself is a bit unnerving. But now it's time. Nurse Brand, the day nurse, she comes in to see how Mrs. West is doing. And she's the first person Mrs. West has seen in months. And this should be a beautiful moment. But it's not. Because Nurse Brand has a cow head. I mean, she's perfectly human in every other way. She is a human. It's just that instead of a human head, she has a cow head. And now the doctor comes in too, and hey, guess what? He doesn't have a human head either. He's not a cow, though. He's a Jack Russell Terrier. So, yeah, the, the twist is animal heads. It's animal heads. I love how in the beginning of this section, the surgeon tells Marta that once she starts to see, she'll see everything. And that does appear to be the case immediately, but yeah, she's getting more than she bargained for. And in the last section, we didn't talk about this, but Marta's excited to see uh, in part because the nurses will be people again instead of just voices. And so there's an immediate irony here being presented to us as readers because these nurses are animals. They're not people now. They're, I don't know, maybe even some kind of creature with animal heads. We don't know. So Marta says at this point in the story, like to the doctors and nurses, instead of something like, hey, I think something's really wrong here. When she's asked how she sees, she says that she sees plainly now. And so Du Maurier's choice of language is really doing a lot of heavy lifting with double meanings for the reader, and it's just wonderful. This whole story, I think, is one of the best written stories that we've covered so far. Oh, absolutely. I mean, just the wordsmithing of this is tremendously beautiful. I will I'll hold off commenting any further because I, you've already said you want to talk about some of these things in the discussion. But yeah, this story is just an absolute pleasure to read. And it's it's psychologically gripping in ways that I have not really been, well, <laughs> I myself have not been a good enough narrator to translate that even into this, this audio recap that we're doing here. But yeah, just gripping psychological melodrama happening here in the buildup, even to the revelation that uh, it's animal heads. Yeah. I mean, part of what makes that really work is that this issue with the animal heads, as I said, is kind of soaked in irony from earlier choices of language that Du Maurier has used. But the real issue here, the immediate issue in the story is that Marta is now acting uncivilly. And in Marta's world, that's the ultimate problem. And we're definitely going to be looking at that in the discussion as well. All right. So at this point, nothing is actually going to happen with the animal heads, uh, at least not immediately, even though this is a very exciting, very shocking revelation for both us and Mrs. West, because Du Maurier here is interested in Mrs. West's response to this, right? And, you know, what our own responses would be. That's a, a big part of what's going on here in this story, or at least, you know, my experience of this story anyway. And yeah, Mrs. West, she does not know that she's in a weird fiction story or, you know, any kind of story at all. So for her, this is a strange and confusing thing that is going on after having been blind for a long time. 
Now, her first thought, of course, right, has to be that the nurse and the doctor are wearing masks. She thinks maybe this is a, a kind of test to tell how good her vision is now or something like that. Now, deep down, she knows that <laughs> that's not a very good way to test whether someone's vision is working well or not. And anyway, when she goes into the hallway, she sees that everyone in her vision has animal heads. There, there's kittens and weasels and boars. And to do something like that, to give everybody these hyper-realistic masks, would be just a huge expense and a, a ton of effort for something that is a test or, 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 you know, maybe a joke. Also, she takes a look out the window and that shows her that it's not just in the hospital. People outside on the street, driving in cars, they all also have animal heads. Now, we the readers, right, we know exactly what's going on, right? The story is called The Blue Lenses, and so it's obviously the blue lenses that are, are doing this, right? And she has to keep them in for a few days, and maybe Mrs. West is also starting to realize that it's the lenses because she asks if the, the next lenses, these final permanent lenses that she's going to get, she, she asks, you know, will those lenses be like these blue ones that she's wearing now? And she is dismayed that the answer is... Yes, it's just that they'll be clear so she can see the natural color of the world. Also, there's a, a warning here. Uh, she needs to not touch her eyes for the next few days. And the doctor tells her that he had a patient once who did that, and that patient lost his vision permanently. So what to do at this point? Well, Mrs. West checks herself out in the mirror and She's fine. She's normal. She's got you know, a, a person's head. It's, it's her head that she recognizes here in the mirror. So now she's back to thinking maybe it is masks, though, again, you know, why the hospital would do this is a real mystery, right? If they wanted to drive her mad for some reason, there are far easier ways to do that. And they have already had ample opportunity to, to carry out a, a, a nefarious plan like that. Gradually, Mrs. West begins to confront the hospital staff about what's going on. Uh, first, it's a nurse who comes in to, to give her a sedative, not one of the nurses we've met already. And this nurse looks like a kitten. And Mrs. West says so. And after this nurse leaves, the head nurse pays a visit because of this incident here. Uh, I say head nurse, but she's called uh, a matron here in the story. And the matron is a sheep. And she lets Mrs. West know that her belligerence toward the staff is not going to be tolerated. And in turn, Mrs. West demands to know what the heck is going on here, right? Why are they wearing costumes? But she doesn't plainly say, why do you look like a sheep? And so the matron thinks that this is a comment about their insignia or their uniforms or something like that. And she just gives Mrs. West a stern reproach and then leaves. And so that's where we are right now. There's going to be another shock in a moment, but I think you know we should pause before we get to that that next shock and talk about I think of the the reality effects of De Maurier's approach to writing these scenes here. Right, all of the inanimate objects in Marta's room are normal or even beautiful. De Maurier writes of Marta's thoughts that even a prisoner could find comfort in his cell if he had been blinded first and had recovered his sight. But of course, that's not the case now that Marta's seeing people. But the nurses are all going about their business. The, you know, the hospital rooms and the actions of the nurses are all described in lush detail. But at the same time that we're getting this description, which again is very close third person narration, 
Marta is basically imprisoned by her own fear. She's wondering if there's a conspiracy against her or if the lenses, quote, by some quality beyond the layman's understanding, transform the person who was perceived through them. These are not comforting ideas. And so what do Marie really leaves the reader with, which, you know, we can sort of figure out that Marta is actually seeing some kind of maybe animus is a word we can use, but really some kind of true spirit of these people. But anyway, Dumarie really leaves us with the sense that Marta does not want to see these things. She wants to go on seeing what she used to see. She doesn't want to see, quote, everything. But even so, she's relieved to talk to Jim on the phone, who at least sounds normal. And he's likely someone who wouldn't be participating in the conspiracy that's enveloped the whole staff of the hospital and the people on the street. But this is really terrifying because... No one is taking Marta's complaints seriously, including her husband, who was too busy to even listen to the words that Marta is saying in describing her problem to him. He's got a lunch appointment. He's got this going on. He's got that. You know, Jim is a pretty distracted guy. He plays golf at midnight with buddies, which I don't know. That's not actually what the text says, but that's the impression (laughs) you get, you know, that that he's got. Yeah, I just got to play this quick round of golf. You know, that should give us some sense of what he's really up to. But then we get to the point where this, as you just described, Glenn, the head nurse comes in and she looks like a sheep and she just really comes to scold Marta. And then what we learn as readers is that there's just a huge amount of pressure to conform to behavioral norms, regardless of what's going on. You know, Marta has just had major surgery and something is clearly wrong with her, you know, with her sight in particular, but more broadly with her behavior. And people are treating her like she's just being ungrateful and acting a little cruelly. No one really seems to be doing their job here. This is a weird situation, I think, for everyone to be in, right? Because from the perspective of the the nurses and, uh, well, not really maybe so much the doctor, at least not at this point, right? But from the perspective of the nurses that she's interacting with, she is behaving pretty strangely. She seems ungrateful. She is being critical. She's you know, saying all of these weird things like, yeah, you look like a kitten and, you know, being scared, I guess, of that a little bit. Right. So there's clearly something in her tone that suggests that, you know, being told you look like a kitten was not meant as a compliment, uh, you know, asking the matron, you know, why do you all, you know, why you have these costumes on, but not saying, hey, look, I'm I'm seen every single person who's come into this room and people in the hallway and people outside have animal heads. And to be honest, I think if this were happening to me, I don't think I would tell people at this point either. You know, I would think I'm, you know, I've woken up in some kind of mystery that I need to solve. I need to know more information before I you know, start telling people what what I'm perceiving here. Because although, I don't know, there, you know, this might be a common side effect that they, they know what to do about. It also seems like there, you know, is something, uh, you know, nefarious going on here. And I would want to want to hold my cards close, I think, in that situation as well. Yeah, if this were a novel... Uh, I kept on thinking about the moment where Marta West gets out of the hospital and this situation persists and she finds other people who have had this surgery who have like learned to live with it and they, you know, do some investigating. But all that's to say is that this is really, as we'll see by the end of the story, an opportunity for character growth for Marta. And we'll just have to wait and see if she takes it and learns from it. 
Right. So let's get to the the next shock in the story, because so far, you know, everything that we've narrated here about the uh, nurses with animal heads and the doctor with the, the, the Jack Russell Terrier head, that's all just been a few hours since her vision has returned. But it is now evening, so it is time for Nurse Ansel to clock in. Nurse Ansel, who has been Mrs. West's most trusted companion during her long stay in the hospital, right? Nurse Ansel, who Mrs. West has just hired to take care of her at home for a week as well. But when Nurse Ansel enters the room, Mrs. West is filled with revulsion and horror because Nurse Ansel is a snake. She's just as tender and caring and and also sympathetic as she was before But now Mrs. West understands that it is all an act and that there is some kind of evil, malevolent force at work here, at work on some kind of plot. And the key is that she cannot let them know that she is onto them, right? She can't let them know that she sees them for who and and what they really are. And that also means refusing any medication that they give her. Uh, Except also, you know, right, she can't be seen not taking it. And so she pretends to take uh, some medicine, a sedative here, but really does not take it, right? We've all seen this move in a a movie before. Uh, Also, eh, she swipes some scissors, you know, just in case. Okay, so we have mentioned Mrs. West's husband, Jim, before. Uh, He was in the flashback scene when Nurse Ansel was hired to come home with them. But now it is time for him to show up in the the present of the narrative. Already, Mrs. West has called him to get him to come over in the middle of the day. But of course, he was at work and he was very busy there and, and, and couldn't just leave and come to the hospital. And now he's actually calling her back to say that he's running even later than expected because his business with the lawyers took longer than he had anticipated. And this business with the lawyers, this is something to do with a trust fund. Uh, We're going to find out more about that when he arrives. But it's an important bit of Maurier's technique that we have these ideas in mind when we do finally even see him. Because, of course, right when we see him, we're going to see what type of animal he is. And, hey, that's going to be now. And, uh... He comes in the room and he's a vulture. And now Mrs. West remembers the night that they decided Nurse Ansel should come home with her to help her adjust. She remembers that Jim and Nurse Ansel had been laughing and joking together. And then it was Nurse Ansel who suggested that Mrs. West would need some care at home for a while. And the suggestion, right, she now remembers the suggestion was not actually her own as she had remembered it previously, right? It was Nurse Ansel's idea. And now she also sees why Jim was so quick to agree. But it's very important, right, that she has to carry on pretending here. Okay, so let's talk about this trust fund business now. Jim does not want to trouble her with the paperwork tonight since she's clearly not feeling very well. But Mrs. West wants to know what's going on here. So the deal is that the lawyers want Jim to become co-director of Mrs. West's trust fund. Now, we don't get a detailed explanation here, but this is some kind of money that Mrs. West has inherited from someone. It's definitely her money. It is not their money. And it is certainly not Jim's money. And she doesn't understand why the lawyers want her to have a co-director, right? Why they want her to have uh, someone else be able to access the money. But Jim assures her that it is just so that, you know, he can sign for her if she's ill or goes away. But of course, 
She doesn't plan to go away, and she's not ill. And now Jim brings this conversation to an end. He really just cuts it off because, or at least, you know, he says it's because he doesn't want to tax her with this business. And now the conversation changes to, you know, what he'll do for dinner, which is go to his club, just as he's been doing for many weeks now. And he says he's getting tired of that. But, you know, fortunately, Mrs. West will be home soon to cook dinner for him again in only a few days. And so now Mrs. West is going to be alone again in the hospital room when we come back. It's really astonishing how quickly Marta becomes paranoid about this whole plot against her. You know, at first she thinks it has to do with the hospital trying to drive her mad. You know, that's preferable, I guess, to believing that her husband is trying to steal her money and that Nurse Ansel and her husband might have something going on on the side. And while Dumarier traps Marta in the state of paranoid fear, we as readers are left with the sense that Marta is really seeing clearly for the first time. She's been used and manipulated by the people around her for their own benefit. She's repulsed by the people who were supposed to be closest to her, the people who were supposed to be looking out for her. To make this really explicit, we're left with the sense that Jim, Marta's husband, is only with her for money and that he wants to get his name on the trust fund so that he can steal for her and go be with Nurse Ansel, who's in on the grift. So because we're familiar, maybe Glenn, you and I, maybe more than our listeners, <laughs> with some of these tropes of stories about inconvenient women, at this point in the story, I feel like you know Marta's going to end up in an attic room or something, like and be locked up as mad, or maybe she'll be trapped in a room with yellow wallpaper. We're just not quite sure. While everyone else does what they want once they've gotten her out of the way. But this isn't quite what Dumouriez has in mind. Yeah, I think a lot of our TV watching habits actually prime us for exactly that sort of thing. In fact, this whole situation really also was reminding me of yet another Twilight Zone episode. This is one we've actually covered on the network. Uh, Valerie and I did the Twilight Zone episode 22 over on on Lower Decks, our, normally our Star Trek podcast, but also just kind of our, our speculative fiction TV podcast. That episode was actually based on an E.F. Benson ghost story from the, the 19th century. Actually, I guess probably the early 20th century now that I say that. But at any rate, that's a story we could cover here on Elder Sign and probably should because it's uh, fairly interesting. But but the move that the Twilight Zone makes to adapt it for television and also to update you know when it's taking place is to set the story in a hospital and it's a, a woman waking up, or at least our entry into the story is a woman waking up in the hospital and she's surrounded by medical professionals and uh, other people, all men in her life who don't believe her, don't believe what's going on. And so like that sort of thing, you know, that's what I've got in mind here. But also uh, Elizabeth and I have been watching a ton of Murder, She Wrote. And like this business <laughs> with the trust fund is just, this is like perfect Murder, She Wrote Act 1 material. <laughs> I, I have tried to limit my Murder, She Wrote references in this episode. And even <laughs> as we'll see in our discussion episode, but Boy, has Murder, She Wrote really formed my own uh, sense of uh, like different types of identity formations, which we'll be talking about in our discussion episode. We won't be referencing it, but there is a, a, a certain type of civility that's present in Murder, She Wrote that you really don't see in TV shows that came after it and, and present TV shows. 
I think if Elizabeth and I didn't have a child at this point, we would actually be doing a Murder, She Wrote podcast for the network. Although also, to be fair, if we didn't have a child, we would not be uh, just crashing on the couch once a week to watch episodes of Murder, She Wrote because we're too exhausted to do anything else. But uh, uh, I digress. So, yeah, I'll get us back on track here. So at this point, Mrs. West is recognizing that what is happening has something to do with the lenses. Uh, In fact, she suspects that the final lenses she's meant to get in a few days is, will, will actually make things worse. That That's what she fears here, that they're going to show everyone as completely animal, not just with animal heads. But again, still, why, right? What's the point of this? Why would someone do this to her? And she thinks it must be some deeply rooted conspiracy, just years and years in the making. But still, she can't figure out what its purpose, what its goal could possibly be. There's another doctor around at this point, and she gets a chance to speak with him alone, and she explains that the lenses are, are bothering her, though she you know, still doesn't come clean about what precisely is going on here. This doctor seems sympathetic, but he doesn't have a solution, and he even praises the surgeon's work, saying that he actually found a nerve in her eye that wasn't working, that in fact had never been working and he was able to make it functional, right? So that dude is pretty awesome and might even, you know, win an award for this sort of thing. And of course, we, the, the weird fiction readers, right, <laughs> the audience of this story, we all read this line through that lens, right? And we're thinking that this nerve must be what's behind this business. And maybe it is. Uh, we'll see if we find out whether that's true or not. Okay, so Mrs. West avoids taking yet another sedative from Nurse Ansel. But now she's under some pressure to do something, and she doesn't just want to lay in here passively, allowing whatever this is, whatever is going on around her, she doesn't want to just lay here passively, allowing that to keep happening. So she makes a run for it. Or, you know, she makes a sneak for it when the night nurses are all distracted. (laughs) Uh, She gets outside. She starts to get in a cab. But of course, right, the cabbie's an animal, too. He's an ape. And that's really horrifying to her. And she changes her mind. And instead, she walks down Oxford Street in the heart of London, and she is surrounded by people with animal heads. And it seems like so many of them are vultures, like her husband, or also jackals or hyenas or dogs. And it feels like the world belongs to these people, right? And of course, what they all have in common is that these are all carrion eaters. And so, yeah, here's a section break now. Uh, This scene outside, which I've barely recounted here, though, this I think is some excellent, frantic writing. This is just really some of the best writing in what is an excellently written story. Yeah, this scene is awesome. Marta sneaks around the hospital. She finds a way out. She's really taking control of her situation, in part because she wants to see just, you know, how deep this conspiracy goes, how far outside of the hospital she can get before people turn to people again. And I get the sense that this is the first time that Marta has done something like this, that 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 she's felt compelled to really take her life into her, her own hands, to take control of her situation. And yet she's immediately overwhelmed by the outside world. Uh, the, the, the truth behind her senses of reality. It's like in They Live when John Nada puts on his special sunglasses for the first <laughs> time, you know, but in this case where instead of seeing the truth behind her advertisements, uh, Marta is seeing the truth behind people's motivations and it's vultures and dogs all the way down. Well, except for this ape here, 
And it's really this ape that stops Marta from getting away, or really her fear of this ape. And I think we'll save a, a brief question about the role that the ape plays in this story in our discussion episode. Yeah, I can uh, preview some of my thoughts about that here by, by saying there's some class stuff going on in this story, as there, there is so frequently in stories that we cover on this show. <laughs> right. So this was a, a big section break here, you know, right in the middle, actually, of some action. And so when we come back after that section break, Mrs. West is back in the hospital and she's back to being unable to see. She hears the voice of the surgeon, and he explains that he's put the final lenses in now, and he's going to remove her bandages again. And then when they're off, she sees people, regular human people, two doctors and Nurse Brand, the day nurse. So it's all over now. It's this nightmare. It's all over. And they explain that the hospital porter had followed her, and he was right with her when she passed out on Oxford Street. It turns out that the surgeon maybe hadn't done the greatest job of putting in these temporary lenses, the, the blue lenses, and one of them was pressing on a nerve. So the doctors, the nurses, the hospital staff, they all blame themselves for her, her flight, this uh, escape that she made. And Mrs. West explains now what she had been seeing, and, eh, you know, eh, they all have a laugh about it. The second doctor, in particular, thinks this is really hilarious because Mrs. West thought he was an Aberdeen Terrier. And hey, it turns out that he's actually from Aberdeen. And so she was at least half right about that. Anyway, everything is awesome. Nurse Ansel is there too, and she feels especially guilty. And in fact, she hasn't left the hospital, even though her shift is long over. And of course, she's gorgeous and perfect looking. And now Mrs. West can't believe that she ever doubted her. Obviously, the plan for Nurse Ansel to accompany her home to help her recovery, that's definitely going to happen now. And that's that. Uh, the staff leave her to rest for a little bit. She's going to get to go home tomorrow morning. Jim is not there right now, but she talks with him on the phone. And now she wants to get dressed and put on some makeup before he comes over. And so she looks at herself in a mirror. And what she sees looking at her is a doe, a female deer. Here's the last line of the story. The eyes that stared back at her were doe's eyes, wary before sacrifice, and the timid deer's head was meek, already bowed. Well, that doesn't bode well. No. <laughs> <laughs> but at least, you know, Marta can see with normal vision again. So that's good, at least. You know, she won't have to deal with any inconvenient knowledge that will force her to adapt to how she sees and interacts with people. But this, this story actually even ends with a kind of Twilight Zone sort of ending where the patient wakes up or maybe even it's like Wizard of Oz even and, and is like something terrible happened but now everything is back to the way it was and of course the problem here is probably the nerve that got activated that's been fixed and so now Marta only really has to recognize herself as a sacrificial doe and that's not I guess too hard to do maybe she always saw herself as that way anyway but this ending definitely communicates to me that everyone's plans are back on and that Marta's going to lose everything and maybe even be killed or end her own life. Yeah, this is a crazy ending, obviously, right? I mean, there's no way that readers to, of this story are not placing themselves 
in this situation and thinking about, you know, how they would react to it and, you know, which of these situations would be preferable. And I think definitely uh, seeing everyone else as normal people headed people and yourself as an animal head, that's preferable because, you know, like vampires have been avoiding mirrors for millennia. So like, you know, you can live that way, I guess, if you really have to. But yeah, I think this business with the trust fund suggests that, you know, the sequel to this story is not is not good. No, and in fact, I think, you know, Dumarie has done a great job of even writing the sequel to this story in just one sentence, and, and that just speaks to the level of mastery that this story uh, relates to us as readers. But we all have plenty of time to talk about craft if we want to, and other issues brought up in the story in our discussion episode. So that's going to do it for this episode. Once again, I'm Brandon Buddha. And I'm Glenn McDorman. As always, you can find us and our other creative projects at claytemplemedia.com. Uh, we're only halfway through this story. I mean, we've done the recap, but we're only halfway done with talking about the story. Uh, next time, we'll be back with the discussion episode. But still, even here at the end of this episode, I want to say thank you so much to the listener who commissioned this episode. This story is really awesome. I had a blast doing this recap, uh, and I'm so excited for the discussion. Yeah, this story made my uh, week really much more pleasant than it had been <laughs> to begin with. So I'm really glad to have read this story, especially this past week. And so, yeah, I echo your thanks, Glenn. So as I said, next time we will be back with the discussion for this story, The Blue Lenses. And until then, we greet you and say farewell. <laughs>